Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Podcast Episode 20, Dred Scott. Like many of the significant figures so far in our podcast, Dred Scott was born sometime around 1800, in the earliest years of independent America. Unlike nearly all of those mentioned thus far, however, he was born into slavery. We have relatively few resources on his struggles and little documentation for most of his life, until a strange quirk of history put him at the center of a very bright national spotlight. This may sound unfair, and perhaps it is, but Dred Scott the Man was not nearly so important as the politics around his legal case. Both in his own day, and later on in the eyes of historians, Scott himself became an often forgotten element, in the same way that all big political feuds usually pass over the human realities in favor of abstract issues. But I do ask that you keep him in mind here, as a human who had his own life, his own will, his own dreams, and just maybe, his own destiny. The specific events in this case go back to Scott's birth. From childhood, he was owned by a man named Peter Blow of Virginia, whose family would later become extremely important in Scott's story. Around age 30, however, a certain Dr. John Emerson purchased Dred Scott. Emerson was a military officer who moved frequently as the army required. Said moves included bringing Scott to Illinois, both as a territory and later a free state, and then to the Wisconsin Territory, also free soil. Now, Scott was then in his late 30s and apparently made no effort to escape, although he probably could have done so. This points to a small but often unrecognized aspect of slavery. It was as much psychological or emotional as physical. In Illinois or Wisconsin, Emerson theoretically could not coerce Scott under the law, and Scott could potentially request his freedom from a local judge. But Scott evidently did not realize that he could do this, or he did not believe that free men would support him if he did so. It also speaks to the psychology of many slave owners, who didn't, or wouldn't, consider that slavery might be neither welcome nor legal in much of the country, and particularly the territories. Now, as a side note, abolitionists in New York during all of this period kept on the lookout for slaves arriving in the harbor, sometimes from the south and sometimes from foreign shores, in order to free them. And for years following the adoption of abolition in New York State, pro-slavery city administrations tried very hard to look the other way in these cases so as not to notice that visiting slave owners often brought human property with them. So we should understand from the beginning that all of the problems that we're discussing here did not stop existing on the immediate borderlands between slavery and freedom. These were concerns that reached deep into the heart of free states and territories. Now, in Scott's specific case, these matters became very significant later on, once he returned to the South. Dr. Emerson died in 1843, and a few years later, Dred Scott's personal connection to the Blow family assumed great significance. Although Dred Scott may not have realized the importance of traveling into a free state and free territory, the Blow family did. They helped him bring a lawsuit to demand freedom. Well, it was more of a politely worded request that the legal community acknowledge his established free status. In fact, Dred Scott had a very good case. While Southern courts might not necessarily have recognized free status from a very brief travel through free lands, Scott clearly had a prolonged residence in both free soil territory and a free state, with the deliberate action of his owner. Precedent in this particular situation clearly favored Scott, 
and probably those backing him expected a reasonably quick victory. It wasn't quite that quick, but in fact Dred Scott was eventually ruled free by the St. Louis County Court. However, Mrs. Emerson appealed the decision, which then went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. And here's where the hopeful plan to free Dred Scott hit a snag. The ongoing national argument over slavery was hardly new in Missouri. Frankly, the state already blazed with the controversy, and the issue had an obvious effect on the case. The court, which leaned pro-slavery, specifically ruled that they didn't need to free Scott, so they didn't plan on doing it. That is to say, even if Illinois law or Wisconsin law said that Scott should be a free man, Missouri would just ignore it, more or less because they could. There's some legal principles embedded in that decision, but that's the rough end of the stick. This put Scott and the Blow family in a bind, since no further legal route existed for them to proceed with the case, in state court. A federal court potentially could have done something about it, but under normal circumstances would not choose to do so. There were no specific, serious grounds for an appeal. Even if the Missouri Supreme Court got their law wrong, it was their law, and their ruling dominated in a purely state case. However, here is where one of the weirder twists of fate had their say in history. Scott's legal owner, the widow Emerson, remarried and moved to the abolitionist stronghold of Massachusetts of all places. Not surprisingly, she decided to carefully leave Dred Scott behind her. Scott, in fact, was left under the employ of her brother, who managed all the slaves, but he then also up and moved to New York. Now, why did two slaveholders decide to move to some of the intellectual centers of abolition? Life is strange that way, and often stranger than fiction. Either way, this was important, because federal courts do have specific jurisdiction in diverse citizens' cases, that is, those which involve the residents of two or more states. Further, a federal court might also feel much more sympathetic to Scott's side of the issue, as well as not facing the same kind of political pressure or social environment that a purely Missouri courtroom could. And although the Blow family had now run out of funds to support Dred Scott's case, the attention they brought allowed him to get pro bono assistance, that is, a lawyer acting for free. Here also started a side issue in the case, which would eventually become of paramount significance. Citizenship was a significant problem in the case, because Scott's citizenship was a necessary precondition to his lawsuit. The Blow family might diligently work every legal lever or private favor they could find, but it was legitimately Dred Scott's case, not theirs, so he must be judged to have the lawful right to bring it. As we will see, this defined, in very fundamental terms, the concept and limitations of slavery, and whether it could even be allowed to exist. It invited questions about who and what African Americans were in an American context. Were they citizens or not? Could one be both a slave and a citizen? So the very basic issue of standing took control of the case as it wound through the system on its way towards the Supreme Court. Yet as so often happens with these things, the parties themselves never made a huge deal out of that issue. To Scott or the Emerson family, as well as the growing public interest, the stake was merely Dred Scott's slavery, and not necessarily the abstract question of citizenship. This fact is understandable, but deeply ironic. The public at large didn't really consider it an issue. Even many abolitionists in this era didn't really assume that African Americans would receive citizenship. Now again, they probably should have, but that doesn't mean that they all did. 
But it was this latter question which is going to come to dominate the case and spark all the backlash. It would also bear the very bitter fruit for the whole nation. Now, before we proceed any further, I need to make sure we all understand a few things about how the federal court system works. If you're not American or just not familiar with it, here are the really important bits for the Dred Scott case. In instances like the one we're seeing, the courts of appeal are effectively reviewing the case to see if the law was applied correctly. They can look at larger concerns, but only if they are specifically relevant. In addition, American courts operate under common law. This means that legal precedents have much more power than in most legal systems of the world. The large legal questions raised where Dred Scott were concerned included the aforementioned citizenship question, as well as issues about the legality of the slavery ban in Illinois. Illinois was not yet a state when Scott first lived there. Neither was Wisconsin. Constitutionally speaking, therefore, could Congress legally eliminate slavery from a territory? Or, under an alternative view, could Congress allow a territory to ban the practice by its own free choice? Now, on the surface, Congress obviously held such power as it was definitively granted the authority to make all needful regulations. But the Constitution does also require that property owners not be deprived of their goods without due compensation, which pro-slavery jurists believed including property and slaves. To simplify a complex issue, most slave owners in this time followed an extreme Calhounite view and declared that the territories were the common property of all the states. This bit of legal ledger domain allowed them to avoid the constitutional point that Congress made all the regulations for the territories. In their eyes, the territories could therefore be simultaneously part of the nation and yet somehow outside of the specific jurisdiction of any existing legal structure. This also has the odd effect of implying that no territory required organization in the first place, which technically rendered the Kansas-Nebraska Act moot as well, but that hasn't actually come around yet. And it also opens all the territories to settlement by free soil movement, but they didn't really think about that. Pro-slavery legislators just ignored all of those issues, and they limited their legal reclassification to only slavery. Abolitionists, and for that matter Republicans and free soil Democrats, broadly viewed the problem as quite simple. To bar slavery in a specific territory or jurisdiction did not deprive anyone of their property. Now, Congress lacked the authority to do so in a state, naturally. But in their eyes, the fact that Congress presumably wouldn't bar any man from taking his horse into a territory didn't mean that Congress, in theory, could not do so. Therefore, if Congress chose to restrict slavery in one or several territories, that too was a congressional prerogative. And they had precedent. The Founding Fathers themselves had clearly allowed slavery in some territories and forbidden it in others. Similarly, an earlier generation of abolitionists had decried the Missouri Compromise which sanctioned slavery in the Lower Mississippi region. And yet now, that same principle ironically armed the next generation with further precedent. For six decades, American law and custom clearly permitted Congress this power. Therefore, in the eyes of abolitionists, it was the slave masters, and not the champions of liberty, who were determined to upend things. Now, if you remember Sumner's crime against Kansas speech, this also explains some of his rancor and why he was accusing the slave owners of having coveted after the birthright of others, having received their own. 
one additional quirk also made this case increasingly politically significant. As mentioned, the politics of this day slowly killed off the idea of popular sovereignty. This did not occur because it became inherently unacceptable to the majority, so much so that concrete events such as the Dred Scott case were making it untenable as a practical position. Now, I'm not here going to try recounting all the arguments which resulted on either of these issues, except to say that they are complex, lengthy, and as it turned out, almost entirely irrelevant because the politics would overtake the element of pure law. What is important is that as the case rose in national prominence, it took on an intensely political character. This really was the trial of the century which attracted both elite political and judicial commentary as well as rousing activism throughout the nation. Also quite significant was that the federal court, under Judge Robert Wells, ordered his jury to decide the case on Missouri law, which not surprisingly would then return Scott to slavery, but also represented an apparently conservative step. It backfired into a very controversial result. As the 1850s ground on, the country positively itched for a wise judicial compromise. Frequently in American history, political messes are at least temporarily halted by a court-imposed solution. These solutions themselves have a habit of being overturned later, which perhaps suggests they don't work as well in practice as in theory. But in the 1850s, with agitation over slavery producing a brutal deadlock in national politics, the judiciary was possibly the only body which had the flexibility to create an acceptable resolution for all factions. The nine Supreme Court justices, after all, were not beholden to the same political passions as the average politician. In the American system, if you are not aware, the judiciary is a co-equal branch of government and represents more or less the impartial law itself, in theory if not always in practice. Thus, when Dred Scott's lawyers appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, the justices considered the idea of taking on the case. Most Americans probably breathed a sigh of relief, believing that with slavery brought directly into the national legal arena, it might finally be resolved. Unfortunately, the results turned out basically as bad as possible for the nation, for the case transformed from a quirky but very specific legal case into a national shame. After hearing arguments, it became quickly apparent that the Southern, more or less pro-slavery justices had a 6-3 majority. However, the very fact that so many leading jurists had Southern origins, and that is simplifying for the movement, would make that decision potentially a bit suspect. Since they had this majority, and perhaps did not really want to grasp a hot poker of politics, the first option of the majority seems to have been to allow the decision of the lower court to stand. This would not have been an especially exciting conclusion to this story, but it would have avoided further controversy. Two Northern Justices... Curtis and McLean suggested that they wanted to write a separate argument laying out a more or less anti-slavery view on the case regardless. At the same time, it seems that at this point President-elect James Buchanan had already begun to exert behind-the-scenes influence to get a very different decision reached. Now I have to warn up front that we don't know exactly what occurred or even really in what order. All of these events took place well outside of the public view, and unfortunately, we can't pull out what many of the main personalities were directly thinking. But Chief Justice Roger Taney 
also seems to have decided that he didn't want to allow Curtis and McLean to effectively steer the public conversation, even if he, that is Tani, got his way in the moment. Now, to remind everyone of our episode on the new president, here is a quick overview of James Buchanan's administration and character. Buchanan came into the office as one of the most qualified presidents in history on paper, with decades of public service and political office, both elected and appointed. He came in with a small but comfortable electoral margin and had sufficient allies to pass most reasonable agendas through Congress. That he is now regarded as running a hard race for the worst president of all time perhaps says something about how badly he ruined these advantages. Buchanan's problems lay in the fact that he thought and acted like a mediocre power broker even while occupying the highest office in the land. He never laid out a clear and bold policy or followed through on leadership of such and this trend continued as president, his administration was entirely dominated by Southern pro-slavery interests. Further, it is one thing for a cabinet secretary to trade favors. It is quite another for the chief executive. By doing so, he invited charges of mortal blindness, weakness, and corruption. Charges which were not at all unfair. Now, when hearing that the Supreme Court decision would go more or less his way, but wanting an outright victory, Buchanan unwittingly destroyed the foundations of national unity. He began a secret correspondence with a pro-slavery justice on the court, using wink-nod implications to exercise influence upon the court. Now this alone is one of the reasons Buchanan is regarded so poorly by historians. He subverted the independence of the highest court in the land to shift a court case wildly in his favor. But in addition, he appears to have never once considered the implications or consequences of his actions. It was all just a way to get a temporary political advantage over his opponents. Now, Justice Greer wouldn't move if Buchanan and Taney brought the entire army into the courtroom with them. But as it turned out, Justice Samuel Nelson looked rather more pliable. He might well bend his vote a hair to support the Southern justices and his fellow Pennsylvanian Buchanan willingly brought all the influence possible. This gave Chief Justice Taney a 7-2 majority with a Northern Justice's cover. What followed became one of the strangest and most ridiculous legal circuses in American jurisprudence, although the widespread hatred of the result overshadowed its sheer weirdness. First off, we didn't end up so much with a Supreme Court decision as nine separate overlapping decisions. The only thing uniting the majority was keeping Scott in slavery, but on almost every point thereafter, there was at least some significant departure and disagreement. The official decision, as recorded by the court, came from Chief Justice Roger Taney, with some concurrence by six other justices. His decision went down as the infamous one, and it's worth looking in its most important aspects. First, in order to dispose of Scott's claim to freedom due to having spent time in a free territory and state, Taney denied that Congress had any power to ban any form of private property in the territories at all. This was, as mentioned, the popular pro-slavery position at the time, since it in theory opened all territories to slavery. Now in practice, this was historically and constitutionally suspect on its face. Furthermore, the aforementioned regulations had already broadly been removed due to Kansas-Nebraska making it a dead issue years in advance. The main practical result was that Taney's ruling declared that Congress could not provide this power to a territorial government either. Regardless, that particular element of the case would merely attract the hatred of free soilers. 
For his next trick, Tani ignited the undying, permanently embittered loathing of every abolitionist, present and future, and maybe in the past too, because I'm fairly certain quite a few deceased abolitionists rolled over in their graves upon hearing about Tani's statements. You see, Chief Justice Roger Tani went out of his way to declare that Dred Scott wasn't a citizen. This was at least an arguable point under the laws of the day, however racist those were, since slaves weren't necessarily considered to be citizens. This dismissed the issue of Illinois law in the case, but, but Tani was way past worrying about that issue. But Tani took this to the next level by building a brick wall of the law against all African Americans in the United States for all time. He denied any rights to any of them, period and forever. Yes, Tani held that no African Americans were or ever could be citizens. He even argued that they had no rights that, well, white Americans had to respect. I am not making this up. I wish I were making it up, but this is really what happened. In doing so, Tani also managed to blatantly lie about known historical facts, willfully obfuscate the plain text of the Constitution, which in this case cannot be misinterpreted, and justify it on the thinnest pretext of a racism farther than even many pro-slavery Southerners would have been willing to go. Justices Curtis and McLean pointed out in dissent, from the time of the Revolutionary War on, citizens of African ancestry had been soldiers. By American tradition, this was a position of standing and respect, and they held and exercised all the rights of citizenship. They had been treated as citizens in both the northern and southern states. Even in this period, African Americans actively served in the armed forces as sailors. In a weird twist of, I don't know what, Tani evaded that by saying that one could be a state citizen without being an American citizen, or having citizen in the several states. One might consider this a curious thing for a federal judge of any variety to declare at any time, ever, given that it directly and unequivocally violates the direct and plain text of the Constitution of the United States. By this point, however, Tani seems to have convinced himself that this formulation would finally stop the ongoing national tension and that any constitutional price to pay was worth that. He perhaps should have realized that if he couldn't create a united front with his pro-slavery justices alone, he could never force the national consensus needed. It did not help that almost immediately, rumors began swirling that the decision had not been reached entirely honestly, which was at least partially true. In fact, the opposition, that is, Republicans, began to hone in very accurately on the influence exerted by President-elect Buchanan. They only erred in the exact size and nature of the conspiracy. To quote a young, unimportant Illinois politician by the name of Abraham Lincoln, But when we see a lot of framed timbers, different portions of which we know have been gotten out at different times and places and by different workmen, Stephen, Franklin, Roger, and James, for instance, and when we see these timbers joined together, and see, they exactly make the frame of a house or a mill, all the tenons and mortises exactly fitting, and all the lengths and proportions of the different pieces exactly adapted to their respective places, and not a piece too many or too few, not omitting even the scaffolding, or if a single piece be lacking, we see the place in the frame exactly fitted and prepared yet to bring such a piece in. In such a case we find it impossible... Not to believe that Stephen and Franklin and Roger and James all understood one another from the beginning, and all worked upon a common plan or draft drawn up before the first blow was struck. 
Now, in contrary fact, Douglas, the Stephen in the previous passage, was a personal opponent of Lincoln, but in this case fully in agreement with Republicans, at least on this matter. To Lincoln and many free soilers, Douglas was still the man who shattered the barriers to slavery and let it loose in the country. Yet that was never his goal, and events did prove that he was strongly opposed to the Southern pro-slavery administration of Buchanan. Douglas became utterly livid with the result of the Taney decision, and he began a new program of opposing the Buchanan administration, which we saw in the renewed fight over Kansas. It's also important to see not only how dangerously radical the Taney decision was, and how corruptly it was reached, but also the kind of threat it posed for national stability. Slavery advocates viewed it themselves as acting defensively, and in the way of political creatures everywhere, pretended not to see their own aggression for what it was, or they mentally justified them. Therefore, any backlash against their choices, statements, or actions came as a supposed shock. They literally couldn't comprehend how their decisions impacted others. Thus also in the Dred Scott case. Over the course of his long life, Roger Taney had grown bitter and apparently spiteful. He had become, at long last, one of the elder statesmen of America. Born all the way back in 1777 and nominally a Marylander Catholic, he found his true calling in mass politics. Now of all things, given his later history, Taney manumitted his own slaves and he defended abolitionists at times. Yet that had been in a more intellectually free era. Serving in the Jackson administration, he became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1836. And, to be very clear, his jurisprudence attracted widespread admiration instead of contempt for nearly his entire career. He struck at special privilege and self-dealing and served credibly for three decades of national growth and development. Yet at a time when abolition and free soil politics were rising in prominence and foretold of a new future liberated from the chains of slavery, Taney retreated into the hidebound attitudes of Southern elites. In such circles, the idea that African Americans were inherently different, separated, and inferior was not merely a racial attitude, but a way of life. Their power, prestige, and status depended on it. And for his part, Taney now sided with Calhoun. Jacksonian populism was never entirely friendly to African Americans, but he was not a friend of Southern elites. And this moment is where they finally and fatally overreached. Taney's ruling tried to cut off all African Americans from all legal status forever. This did not merely reinforce slavery. It tried to lock down a racial order for all states for all time. It selected one race of men and declared them, and them alone, subhuman as a matter of law. Yet by implication, Taney proposed to go farther and it is clear that he was at least considering taking that step in the future. Remember that Dred Scott had prolonged residence in free territories and a free state. Now, this was ignored in the ruling. But if this was so, then why couldn't slaveholders take their bondsmen into any state? Wouldn't the Fugitive Slave Act also then require free state citizens to enforce slavery? Taney justified his ruling on the basis of the Fifth Amendment, which protects private property. Could this apply nationally? In response to the Taney decision, slaveholders crowed that they had destroyed the Black Republican Party. But in reality, the Northern electorate realized all of the points that we just reiterated above, and decided that they must support the Republicans more than ever. If the Supreme Court had gone against the will of the people so vigorously, they would simply change the court. 
After bringing up all of these legal issues, however, I'd like to return for a moment to Dred Scott the Man. In the end, Scott was indeed returned to slavery for about five minutes. His entire family was quickly turned over to the ownership of the Blow family, who immediately set them all free. Scott himself would die a little over a year later from chronic illness. Dred Scott the Man lived as best he could, and he died in relative obscurity. But then Dred Scott the Legend was born, and he proved the deadliest foe of slavery. It's true that he was never a heroic outlaw like Harriet Tubman. He was never a mighty orator like Frederick Douglass. And yet his influence may have been greater than both combined. Dred Scott created a permanent proof, if you will, of slavery's incompatibility with liberty in the American political system. A reminder that spurred abolitionists and all free soilers until the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment. Further, his legacy is a reminder and a symbol of the realities of the quest for freedom. Far from being a glorious battle to the death, Scott's experience was a draining contest of sheer endurance, and one that he didn't undertake alone. He didn't crush his opponents underfoot. Instead, he secured his freedom by outlasting any desire, any power to keep him in bondage. He was a man with a family and friends, nothing more or less. And I hope at the least that his last days were as comfortable and as cheery as any man could ever ask for. He deserves no less. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll join us next time when we cover a slightly more violent subject, John Brown.